Welcome to another episode of Bookings. I'm Paul McKay, and I'm really excited to be joined by Amy Shearer Title, who many of you may know from her numerous TV show and documentary appearances, her articles for the BBC and Time magazine, or from her blog and YouTube channel, The Vintage Space. It's so great to meet you, Amy. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So you describe yourself as a professional space history nerd. Yeah. <laughs> Where did your love of space come from? Uh, my love of space came fittingly from books. Um, I actually was working on a second grade uh, school project on Venus, which I thought was so cool because it's like it's like the same size as the Earth, but inside out because it's so hot and it spins backwards. And you can see it in the night sky without binoculars. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. So I started you know, devouring these kids' space books. And in one of them, there's a two-page spread on every planet, including the moon, which I know is not a planet. But, you know, every major body. And that that page had a little cartoon of two astronauts standing in front of the moon. And right in Canada, or in front of the lunar module, I should say. In Canada, you know, NASA's not everywhere. So I'd never heard of this whole moon landing thing before. And I was like, people went to the moon? Why was I not informed? And I just, like, had to know everything about it. And I've just always been curious about the details. Like, how, why, like, what? Because um, it's insane. And that kind of just, like, propelled my love of space and science and mid-century insanity uh, ever since. And this book is a bit of a departure for you because it deals with a lot of sort of pre-space time. Yeah. Um, you get to talk about planes and the history of aviation. Uh, was general aviation something you were interested in as well? Yeah, I always say that aviation is kind of like hand in hand with space flight because you can't get into space without flying through the air first. And so much of the aviation history actually fed into NASA's creation, which I'll plug my first book, was the subject of my first book, Breaking the Chains of Gravity. Available at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, like the early, like the X-15 rocket plane, all these things were trying to figure out like human factors at high altitude flight, new technologies, new um, skins for aircraft that could actually survive atmospheric reentry, and all of that kind of feeds into space so looking at aviation it, it's a very natural kind of handmade into space flight for me and it's you know planes still like I, I flew out here in a plane and it still seems like magic so I, I love early aviation history it's just figuring out how to do stuff for the first time is always wild and like nothing does that quite like airplanes because you know in 10 years it was the Wright brothers getting an inch off the ground at Kitty Hawk to dogfights in the first world war I mean that's an insane amount of innovation in a very short time frame so I loved being able to explore different facets of aviation for this book. So the title of the book is Fighting for Space, Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight and first of all perfect title. Um, Thank you. Works towards space flight and women fighting for their space in that yeah. which I will admit took me an embarrassingly long time to kind of click. Yeah. It was actually the title was a was a fight in itself, which is the oh well, like I want to say it was the irony of the title, but I feel like Alanis Morissette ruined irony for an entire generation of Canadians because I don't really know what irony is ever. Um, yeah, it was it was hard to get to this title, and I had to fight for the title of fighting for space. And I, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like women fighting for space, like in a boardroom on a panel, but also like literal space. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt your question. No, that's totally fine. <laughs> So the two pilots in the title that you're talking about are Jackie Cochran and Jerry Cobb. And reading your book, you really couldn't ask for two more interesting characters to follow through the book's trajectory from pre-supersonic spaceflight towards space travel. 
So I was wondering if you could just start talking about these two ladies. So yeah. who was Jackie Cochran? Well, Jackie's kind of like the biggest badass you never knew you needed to know about. Agreed. She's, <laughs> right. She's I'm amazed that no one really knows her. Like hardcore aviation geeks have heard of her, but no one knows the depth. Um, Jackie held more records than any pilot in the world when she died. She was the first woman to fly, woman to fly through the sound barrier. She was the first woman to fly a bomber overseas in the Second World War. She was... Uh, the first woman to the sole first solo woman to win the Bendix Transcontinental Air Race. She had an unsuccessful bid for Congress. We won't talk about that too much. Um, and she, uh, yeah, she she was setting records left, right, and center. She saved LBJ's life one day. Eisenhower was a close friend who wrote his memoirs at her house, and she learned to fly as an adult. Like you don't often hear of people with natural aptitudes getting into it later in life. It happens, but she learned to fly when she was in her early twenties, and within seventeen days got a license, and that was in nineteen. 19- 32 by the end of the decade had won every major award in the united states and just kept going up from there um and the other woman we have is jerry cobb who grew who's, she's 25 years younger than jackie and she grew up in a very different world um in the 40s it wasn't unheard of for a woman to fly or a young woman to fly so jerry had the opportunity to fly when she was a teenager when she was 12 and got her license when she was 16 which you can do it's that's you know young but doable so she had the advantage of flying her entire life that Jackie didn't have but she was never quite the pilot that Jackie was and in large part you know some people just know how planes are rigged as Jackie says and you know Chuck Yeager is kind of the most notorious example of like never studied anything but like knows planes just kind of intimately um but the other thing that Jackie had going for her was a very wealthy husband um Floyd Odlum is not a familiar name, but he was right up there with like the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the Mellons and the Schwabs. Like he was one of the richest men, one of the 10 richest men in the United States in the Depression and made money off the Depression, which is even stranger. So he had opportunities that he could give his wife to get her into a jet to break the sand barrier at a time when women could not fly for the military at all in the United States. What were these early planes like that Jackie was flying? Uh, it was really interesting in the book you know, just trying to get the mental image of how difficult these were to fly. So uh, a lot of pilots were big, beefy, strong men who needed to physically wrestle with the controls of the planes. How Mm -hmm. did she deal with that? By also muscling controls. Yeah, early early planes, you know, were very physical to fly. It was not an easy thing. You know, now we have hydraulics. Now you press a button and your ailerons move and your rudder moves. At the time, you're physically pulling it and that pulls a cable and that moves your control surfaces. And you can't you can't do that if you're a tiny person with no upper body strength. So a lot of it is like, you know, willingness to make it happen, but also the willingness to like Jackie talks about eating a lot of meat and bulking up on protein before a race. So she would have the strength to actually fly for eight hours because, you know, these planes didn't have autopilot in the 30s. They didn't have good instruments even sometimes. It's just sort of like you're going and you can you can follow your instruments, but sometimes you can't and you are physically moving your control surfaces. So this is a it's a physically demanding and very dangerous thing because it's not there's so there's been so much change in aviation safety obviously in the last like 90 years imagine that (laughs) but it's you know you you have a few a few instruments that don't all talk to each other and you don't have nearly as much data as a pilot does today and you're flying across the country through a storm and that's just kind of normal so the idea that she's up there flying without instruments sometimes and you mentioned that she'll just like open a window to be able to see like that's just kind of an insane thing for for flying compared yeah. to what we think of now yeah well the, the one the looking at the window to fly that was a jerry flight actually um 
and uh, this in that case she had instruments that just failed and you know things break on planes and luckily she was really lucky this is a 1959 flight and she was not flying that high she was only at about 10,000 feet so she could look out the window and like match it up with a map on her knee but like it's still insane to think about somebody and she was going for a world record speed run of a 2,000 kilometer closed course at the time and she's like got a map balance on her knee and that's her navigation system because her compass fails I mean how does a compass fail it's just a magnetic needle but Mm. apparently her compass just failed and was going completely backwards she's like well I guess we're back up navigation of a map like these things broke things were not constantly working and it was it was not easy and back to Jackie she's this tough as nails pilot but she also had a cosmetics company which is kind of fascinating yeah this is like this is one of the reasons I love Jackie so much because she's she was the woman who had multiple sides of herself which you know women do because women are people <laughs> and she refused to compromise any of it so her her backstory I don't want to give it all away I'm gonna you know lead, lead people into wanting to read it but her backstory is amazing and I you know I ended up having to like I, I got to like the Montgomery County clerk's office in Georgia I think or Alabama there's a lot of Montgomery counties in the south um to get her her like divorce records to find out what name she was using before she like created the persona of Jackie Cochran because she was not born Jackie Cochran um but beauty she got her start in in beauty salons and doing hair to get out of this abject poverty of mill towns because her father worked in a cotton mill and a lumber mill and she she actually learned to fly because she wanted to launch her own cosmetics line and she met Floyd her who would become her husband one night at dinner and she was talking about her desire to you know sell cosmetics on the road and get out and launch a business and he just very Casually, by her retelling of it, says to her, well, you'll, you, you need to cover more ground than you could in a car because it's the depression. Get a pilot's license. And she's like, okay. Like, it, the whole thing was just part of her business of wanting to sell cosmetics. And then realized, like, okay, no, this is my purpose in life and became the pilot. But she still launched the cosmetics company. And uh, it, when she launched, it was billed as one of the two luxury brands alongside Elizabeth Arden. And then by the 50s, I think it was the second largest in America after Estee Lauder, which is still around and still a luxury brand. And I love that she took this, like, typically feminine, like, flippant idea use air quotes because this is a podcast (laughs) flippant idea of like touching up your lipstick and turned it into a power move so she wins an air race in 1938 she sees all the press coming she knows she's gonna have people taking pictures of her she's been breathing through a pipe stem for oxygen for eight hours it's like frozen to her face so she you know very calmly pulls out her compact and touches up her lipstick making all the men wait she's like no I won you wait on me now and I will do the feminine thing and I just I love that she turns all of it into a power move that was one of my favorite parts oh of the my book. god Absolutely yeah really and I have it. the pictures of her doing it yeah. that's the best part <laughs> yeah she's just so, like you said, just badass. Yeah. And you wonder, why have I not been told? Why did I, I not learn about her in school, for I instance? Know. I don't. And that I can't answer. <laughs> I wish I could. But honestly, I'm. there's a big part of me that's really glad that I've gotten to like dig through her personal archives and her personal papers because she kept everything. Mm. So the, the fun thing in the book, and sort of to digress a little bit, but um, all the dialogue in the book, all that stuff, it's all from letters that she kept. And because she was friends with Eisenhower, it's in the Eisenhower Library. It's part of right. the American National Archives. So you can just go in and, and look. And it's awesome. I have like 5,000 pages just from that library alone of her letters, her papers, her stuff. And it's just, 
thank you, Jackie, for keeping everything because it really helps me bring her to life in a really nice way. I, I think I tried. <laughs> and it's great because since Alessa, of like her story is almost unbelievable. Yeah. Like if this was a, a fiction story, like, OK, like that's too much. No yeah. one is that cool. Yeah. Well, that was the that's the challenge when um, both of these women wrote memoirs and memoirs, we know, can be self-serving. And they were. <laughs> both of them took liberties and uh, both of them massaged the truth. And I, I acknowledge this in the author's note that I wanted to, in some cases, honor how they saw themselves. Um, but also, you know, say what is potentially a fabrication. Uh, with Jackie, though, so much of the stuff like going through it, it sounds unreal. It sounds insane. But then there's a letter that backs it up or there's a report that backs it up. And I'm like, how are you actually here? It's like her friendship with LBJ. I'm like, I'm sure she just like met him a couple times, whatever. You go to the LBJ library and he's got catalog cards of every meeting he took. And there's like eight with Jackie that are off the record because it was a social call. I'm like, no, she was actually just there. It's it's wild. Like you were every I, I call her like the real Forrest Gump because she touched everything and she was a, in part of so much history. But instead of running, she flew. No disrespect to Forrest Gump or Tom Hanks, but like she's like a better, more insane, awesome, real Forrest Gump. I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a collection of some of Jackie's things. I do. Yeah. Oh, my God. I So like I went. OK, so I feel like. People will either be on Team Jackie or Team Jerry. And it's so funny because I'm getting friends texting me. They're like, oh, my God, I love this book. Also, hashtag Team Jackie. I'm just like, I know. it's, And I, I've met people that are like, I don't know. I like really feel with Jerry. I'm like, and I get it. And I kind of wanted to write it in a way that doesn't tell you who the winner is because there's no winner. It's just kind of a thing. And it's it's weird. And that's like the hardest thing with the story is like there's no end even. It's just kind of like peters out but um i definitely uh went down the rabbit hole on jackie big time because she she kept so much stuff and she was so famous in her time there's ephemera that exists of her like i've been hunting down relics of the cosmetics company the compact that i actually use is like a little mirror in my purse is a jackie cochran cosmetics compact i've got like seven or eight that i've collected perfume bottles that i use um she had this thing called the perk up stick that was uh you see them now advertised on facebook as like the little or at least i get the ads on facebook <laughs> you probably don't <laughs> of like like um like blush lips face eyes and like these little things they screw off and you have all the things she debuted that in like 1940 something as the perk up stick and oh, there was really? apparently a whole kit that i didn't even know existed but was gifted for christmas like the best gift I ever got <laughs> and you know magazines that she was in and the best thing I have that was the most insane thing I have is a uh, in the book I mentioned that she and Amelia Earhart were good friends and that Amelia inscribed a copy of her book the fun of it to Jackie to in memory of an electro jaunt across the country which is the first time they flew together and I actually have that book which is like as a book person and a history person and a huge Jackie and like women in flight person I'm just like it just it's just on my like bookshelf in my bedroom just like this will be here forever that's pretty it's great awesome yeah so we've got jackie and jerry both amazing pilots how does this work towards space flight these two pilots end up kind of thrust into the world of space by virtue of the era. Jackie is setting all the records and has just done this bid for Congress in 1956. And Jerry is trying to figure out how to work as a professional pilot in 1956. And in 1957, Sputnik happens and kind of changes the entire world in an instant. And, you know, Sputnik itself wasn't much. It was just a 184 pound ball that beeped you couldn't see it everyone who tells you that they could see it in the backyard they could not see it they could actually see 
see the upper stage trailing it um, that was lit up by the sun. But Sputnik opened up the space age. And all of a sudden, it was, you know, a competition with the Soviet Union to figure out, okay, well, we need to be dominant and show our technological dominance. And part of that, you know, NASA was officially created to peacefully explore space flight or space, uh, you know, for, for all of mankind and stuff. Really, it was just to get an American up before the Soviets. Like, let's mm. not beat around the bush. It was purely like, let's do this and beat the Soviets. So who is that man going to be? And they, NASA was looking at the, the, per, the people that would best fit that job. And it was really like everything in space was new. Everything was changing mission to mission. And no one knew what would happen to the human body. Like, are eyes going to distort and let, render you blind? You might not be able to swallow. Like, your bones could decondition so fast and, like, osteoporosis could just set in. You could just, like, ooze out of the spacecraft at the end of a mission. Like, no one knew what was going to happen but figured out that the figure that the best people that had, like, the fast reaction time were used to being engineers' eyes and ears in a cockpit and could react really fast were military test pilots because that's what they were doing. That was the job. It's just, you know, instead of the sky, as the laboratory and now space was going to be their laboratory effectively um and that was limited to men at the time so when nasa was created and started looking at potential astronauts military test pilots was it and it had they also had to be under 100 uh under 180 pounds otherwise the rocket wouldn't get off the ground and uh shorter than six feet because otherwise the capsule wouldn't close because that's how sketchy space flight was looking in 1959 um so what they what nasa did first was figure out like personality testing basically like are you someone that someone could be locked into a spacecraft with for a week Do you, are you a nut bar with a death wish like what's the deal here and then from there kind of the more like intense psychological profiling some simulation testing and then finally the 34 finalists went to medical testing at the Lovelace Clinic in New Mexico if you've seen the right stuff it's that famous montage of like water in the ear needle in the hand running down the hallway with the enema bags um, that's real that all that's all what happened it was basically like without knowing what's going to happen to the human body let's send the most physically fit men and hope they die the least <laughs> again space light was great in mm. 1959 um so that's i mean that's it it's it became that pool of men because the base requirements restricted women the women didn't have that background and uh that was in, in april of 1959 america met its astronauts and and i deliberately introduced stuff in the epilogue of the book to question how jerry ended up here but she ends up taking the same medical tests as the astronauts and she does decently i mean you can't like pass a medical test there's not like a you know mark but she does well enough and uh randy lovelace who ran the testing was pleased and wanted to announce her results in a medical paper because that's what scientists do. Now, the important thing we have to know in the story is that Randy Lovelace was a very good friend of Jackie's. And also, Floyd Odlum, Jackie's husband, was not only bankrolling the clinic, he was chairman of the board of the Lovelace Foundation. So nothing's happening there that this couple doesn't know about. So Randy Lovelace announces Jerry's results at a medical conference in August of 1960 and much in the same way today as like when someone publishes a paper saying there's new evidence for past water on Mars and then MSNBC is like there's water on Mars there's still not water on Mars Randy Lovelace said something along the lines of 
woman passes the test given to medical test given to the astronauts and the media is like there's a woman astronaut and then it just became this like media frenzy insanity that jerry did nothing to stop she really wanted to be an astronaut so her approach was to run with this media coverage try to actually use it to promote herself to get herself in the media as much as she possibly could to force nasa into letting her fly in space and this is where like researching and writing this book it became really complicated because it's so like she said she said all over the place you've got jerry talking at conferences saying there's a woman astronaut program followed by jackie immediately afterwards who's like that's not a real thing that exists so it gets more complicated as lovely starts bringing in more women he asked jerry to submit some names of women that might be good and also asked jackie to officially advise him on more women to test so she puts forward names so the two of them end up just trying to take control of this program that isn't really a thing and all the while by the way, NASA has just been told by President Kennedy that it's going to the moon. Right. So, like, that's a big thing that was happening with the country and with the space agency while these women are trying to fight to be taken seriously as potential astronauts. And, like, it sounds bad to say it, but you have to think of it in 1961-1962 time frame. What do you think is going to matter more to the people running NASA? The fact that the president just pledged us to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade in a race with the soviet union or this woman that's like i want to fly in space like you kind of understand why these things just like didn't match up at all at the time but it just became this like intense media fight and got all the way to a house subcommittee hearing and you know jerry and jackie and another woman who did the testing janie hart testified before this this uh, group of congressmen as did uh, John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth, Scott Carpenter, the second American to orbit the Earth, and George Lowe, who was in the manned spaceflight program. So, yeah, standing room only just to look at the astronauts. That's how famous they were. And it just, it was such a, it, the whole thing is such a mess. And, like, so luckily I have all the letters they sent each other at the time to, like, piece together the actual timeline of what happened. So, like, the story usually goes that these women were a group, and that's what Jerry was telling the press, that there's this group of women. And, like, they were not a group they never met they never all got there at the same time so you know and having all of their recollections in these letters is just amazing so given the the option if they were going to pursue women in space like jackie would have probably been the person on paper that would have been the, the correct one to go do it was there any sort of animosity that did jackie want to do this jackie did and uh she she writes in a couple of places and in one at one point writes to lbj she would give her right eye to be the first woman in space she was however at the time pushing 60 she was too old by male standards too she was also medically unfit she and i actually have the same medical issue which is kind of fun um she had a botched appendectomy as a kid and uh, had complications of scar tissue adhering to her intestine and i, I have that from a previous surgery so i feel i feel jackie on this one but you know no one's going to send somebody with potential abdominal complications up into space um so, and you know it was more it wasn't just that they were going for like the personal i want to do it i want to do it though they both did want that jerry wanted to be the one and you know she writes you can see the tone of her letters changes over the years like in 1961 she's like i want this for women i want to open space for women and then by 1964 she's like it's my god-given right i want to do this like it becomes i language and jackie's whole thing i think you know she wanted to do it but i think deep down she knew she couldn't although she was the only female test pilot in the country she's the only one who had any kind of shot um she what she wanted to do was create this like big exploration of women 
as potential astronauts of like 200 women and get all the data points and figure out like really what women can do as astronauts where they're you know what things you'd have to change like women are you know more are petite you know could they reach all and whatever the thing is such that when nasa was ready for women astronauts she could be like here's here's the report here's everything you need you have no excuse to not do it right now and that and i think in a lot of ways like that makes sense you know she's the one that started a women's program in the war she knew how to play the game a little bit because you had to at the time and Mm -hmm. frankly you still kind of have to when you're a woman in a male dominant world and jerry's approach was more like forcing her way in And what's interesting when we look at kind of the qualifications of astronauts, which is what this whole issue came down to, is that NASA actually started looking at potential women astronauts like two years later after the hearing. Um, And this is stuff that didn't get into the book because it just it was kind of a tangent. But um, but I'll tell you anyways, (laughs) Um, it was in 19, I think it was 64, 65. And I have got to stop bringing this up without double checking the year um but it was a group i think it was a group four astronaut class was the first group of scientist astronauts this is when nasa was like well we're going to the moon getting there is one thing but we got to do some science up there so let's bring in geologists let's bring in people who can actually do some research in space for us and most notably jack schmidt of apollo 17 was in this group and nasa when it was pulling together its list of finalists had four women in that group and it sent that list to the national academy of sciences to pair down to like the best people and among the names that were removed from the list that nasa sent over and was sent back to the agency the women were all gone and i don't think i don't know that it had anything to do with gender i think it was more like you know this was nasa looking at what humans can do and that four of those humans happened to be women no one really cared um but there you know there's there's other issues with starting with mixed gender crews and stuff and you know same reason the navy still doesn't allow women on submarines and also they were very confused about how women pee <laughs> yeah that i started looking into that that all happened in the 70s and they started to look into like the logistics of women but there was you know complications quote unquote um but nasa did start looking at women in the 60s it just didn't get any media attention and I I suspect because of how much negative attention came from this congressional hearing and Jerry kind of forcing her hand so you mentioned there's people who are sort of team Jerry or team Jackie but they seem to have the same goal in mind which is different kind of approaches to get there yeah I was just thinking like okay if maybe maybe Jerry was the first woman to go up and something happened it would be blamed on women like mm-hmm. women can't be astronauts and yeah. set them back is that a fair kind yeah. of assessment yeah and that's actually one of the things that that Jackie was like you can't just push your way in because if you do and something goes wrong women you'll you won't push them back years you'll push them back decades mm. and she knew the reality of of women forcing into technological fields um but i think you know I, there's a lot to admire in both women i mean i i do kind of love Jerry's fight. I love that she was so passionate and went for it. And she, you know, she talks about when she was a kid, because again, they both wrote memoirs, and she re- recalls being very quiet as a kid. And then to kind of come out of her shell with something she believed in so strongly and felt so, so personally about. Um, and to get all the way to to Washington, like that's that's an accomplishment in itself. And I think there's a lot to be admired. I don't think she necessarily did it the right way, but that she did it, she took it on is really quite admirable. And, and with Jackie, I mean, there's a lot to like, too, because she she as you know, she had a lot of advantages. She was able to kind of leverage her husband's wealth and her position to do a lot of things. But she she wasn't it's not like she wasn't skilled and was faking her way in. she wasn't like the trust fund kid of aviation she was that good to where she 
she had earned her place in this male dominant field and refused like she was one of the boys and she liked being one of the boys but she was also like I'm one of the boys also my new cosmetics line is on sale like she never left that part of her and I just think in in an era now where women are always told to and I'm sorry this is the ramp bit, but, <laughs> but where women are always told like you know to if you like science to not do this not look like this you know this I just love this woman that was like oh god screw you I'm gonna do it exactly how I want because yeah. I know that I'm good and I know that I deserve to be here. I just think she's a great role model in that sense. And I didn't come across when I was reading it as, you know, one person was right and one was wrong. Uh, you know, good. Everyone, I tried really hard yeah, to it, not it shows. lead the reader. Yeah. And like everyone loves to pit two women against each other. You know, they're both brilliant. They're both incredibly yeah. skilled. They just had different opinions on how to yeah. get to a certain thing. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, again, some stuff in the epilogue that brings some things into question but it's still I mean it's not it's none of it was designed for I'd never wanted to tell you what to think of somebody I think you can tell who like where some of my like passion lies between the two of them but there's a I really wanted everyone who reads it to just feel it for themselves and I know people have a different experience based on their own experiences and I I get that and it's I, I kind of that's why I love these two very complicated women they both they both did some great things they both kind of did some bad things they both had romances they both had loss and they're both very human mm. and I love that you can find little things about both of them that kind of resonate and I was really hoping to build characters that you know they're complete people so given that they started to do tests on possible women astronauts was there anything that kind of came out of it that women are particularly built better for spaceflight? There, there is actually some scientific evidence that women are better equipped to spaceflight. And it's it's really just because women are smaller on average. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, when we're talking about spaceflight, mass is the premium. The, I, I forget what it is. There's like some ratio of, you know, every pound of payload at the top of the stack translates to X hundred liters of fuel at the right. bottom. We know whatever the ratio is, the lighter your payload, the easier it is to launch the further you can go, the more you can take with you. So if you have a woman who's going to consume less oxygen, um, eat less food and weighs less, that's better for spaceflight than like your six foot tall man who's going to need a lot more food, consume more oxygen and ultimately, you know, produce more waste because God, humans are hard to put into space. We are not compact creatures. Um, so there's there's that evidence, but there's no, to my knowledge, and I, I've, I've gone into some of this, but not not insane amounts. There's not that much that says, like, women are better, asides from, like, the being small and fewer resources. I mean, women and men have specific skills that are better used for certain missions. And, you know, there's some things that say we had this with the ridiculous thing of the all-female spacewalk that was canceled because they didn't have the spacesuits. Like, NASA just shouldn't have announced it before double-checking that the gear fit. But, like, you know, you do have some women that are going to be smaller that can't do some things given the equipment. And, like, that's not a shortcoming of anybody. That's just, like, I'm literally short. So I think there's there's been some evident, just evidence that women are, are capable. I think there's some evidence that women... Oh, I've read a study about this. There's something with women and bone density loss and muscle atrophy. I think women might lose. I shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anecdotally. But don't quote me on this because the blog is yet to come out. <laughs> um, There's a, a bed rest study done in 1973 on Air Force nurses. And it looked at um, deconditioning of women versus men because there was plenty of data on men. And I think women lose a bit more muscle density 
than men in the same time frame but it's like it's not something that you need to be that worried about right. like you can you can use your exercise bands in space and you can go on the colbert thing i think it's i think that treadmill is still called the colbert I right think so. <laughs> um you can you can condition that out so it's really just like understanding the individuals too because like people vary right so there's it's really women can be a little bit lighter but at the end of the day like people people can do the things and we can figure out how to keep the people alive, ideally. Right. <laughs> the radiation and Mars thing, that's where we're going to get into a big challenge. I'd love to see some of the data from the personality tests of their attempting yeah. to kind of weed people out. Like, no, you're just annoying. Well, like, a oh. lot of it. What's so interesting is that it wasn't all like, you know, you think about psychological testing. You think of like the, I always say this word wrong, but the Rorschach test, Rorschach test. <laughs> we'll go with that. I always fumble on that one. Um, you think of those things. But what it really was, was like they'd have them out for cocktail parties and they just meet them informally and they'd see like, are you faking being pleasant? Are you actually good at like, can you? play well with others like basically once the time these astronauts and this this is definitely in the 50s maybe early 60s too this is probably not happening now but um every meeting actually it probably is still happening now i don't know that for sure though but every meeting was like trying to suss out if you're the right personality type to be in space because like when you think about who do you want to go on a road trip with okay Mm -hmm. now who do you want to be locked in the car with for two weeks or six months i mean this is yeah, you you want to make sure they're like play well with others, nice, kind, don't start fights, are not disagreeable. I mean, that's that's a huge part of space life. The psychological part, I think, is way more challenging to like suss out. Yeah, I went to Kennedy Space Center years and years ago, and just being able to see some of those pods that two people would have to be in for a length of time is just uh, mind-boggling to yeah. me. There's not many people I would want to be in that right? close space with for that long. And that's one of the reasons, actually, they were looking at military test pilots because these were guys that just did the job and they were used to really uncomfortable situations and just like being forced to work with somebody. And like some of them were friends, some of them just did the job. And like not everyone can do that. I would not be the best at just like you're going to be stuck with this person for two weeks and just you just got to do it. And it's like. Do I have to? Like, I don't think that's for everybody. I think it's a lot. There's a lot of like mental and emotional fortitude that goes with it. So maybe it's a little bit different now because you've got more space. You actually have a little private sleeping berth on the station and stuff. But it's still like there's it's it takes a certain kind of person to to really be the right person to do that. It's an interesting thing to think about because when you think of astronaut training, that's not the image that comes Mm -hmm. to mind, like mental fortitude. You're, You're in the centrifuge you yeah know, you picture someone spinning around like okay they they don't throw up they can be yeah. an astronaut i feel like all of that is ultimately the emotional conditioning almost that like you get so used to this stuff you work with the same people you find your rhythm with the individuals and you kind of become the right person but i've always wondered what it's going to be like and to digress completely what it's going to be like for the first human missions to mars because like when you're in when you're in the, on the ISS like you can still see the earth and you don't have much if any light time delay you shouldn't there might be some mild calm delay but like fraction of a second mm-hmm. to the moon it was like a third of a second you can still see the earth and that has to be psychologically helpful um and even on the Apollo missions they talked all the time because they didn't want them to like realize what was happening and freak out because that was a concern with missions to Mars, like, they've simulated 500-day missions, but you know that you're on Earth. I don't know what's going to happen when you can't see the Earth. Mm. And I don't know who's working on that problem, but I think it's one of the more interesting ones looking forward at long-term human spaceflight because 
there's going to be something weird when you realize that you can't see anything in space. You can't see the earth. You can't see the moon. You can see the sun. But, like, it's, you know, a tiny pinpoint because you're far. Like, that's going to be weird. And I don't know how you even start preparing or picking the right people for that mental fortitude. I'm a huge fan of Antarctic exploration. Um, And that was kind of the NASA of the day. And the idea of some of these men would go off for, you know, four years into the Arctic and all they would see is snow and white and what their kind of mental ability would be like. Yeah, that's actually one of the best analogs we have. And a lot of people, because I have a few friends who are have applied for the astronaut corps and are currently applying. And like Antarctic research is one of the things that gets people further along in the selection, apparently, because you've shown that you can be there for a number of months and not go nuts and if you liked it and you you were okay in that environment that bodes well for you to be in space it's actually that you bring that up it's that's a good one there's other stations in like hawaii that are pretty martian like you can't really there's nothing there there's no trees you can't see anything and you just like you live up there for a year for these simulations i have a friend who did one and yeah that's that's a different level of you know, learning to deal with nothingness. But How did your friend important. find that experience? She loved it. Yeah. She loved it, but she interestingly came out of it. I feel like I should say her name is Shana Gifford. Um, if you're curious, she's awesome. She's a great advocate of STEM stuff, and she came out of it saying, you know, Mars needs everybody. Mars doesn't just need scientists or doctors or engineers. Mars needs artists. Mars is going to need massage therapists and musicians and people to bring humanity with it. Like, that was her biggest takeaway. She's a doctor, but she also understands that, like, Mars is going to need a stand-up comic. Like, we need somebody to break the ice and keep that tension because she said it was really, it was challenging, but rewarding and, and really kind of opened her eyes to the, the range of emotions that we need to be aware of when we're going going into these missions i thought that was a very cool i just i never thought about it until i met her you know no one ever thinks about it unless you're doing it but it's it is a cool thing to think about so when you were setting out to write this book was your initial intention sort of to cover the specific time period or to do a biography on one or both of these women or is the finished product basically what you had originally intended well, there's a long answer to this one, too. Right. So <laughs> so when I started the, the story of the, again, air quotes on, on podcast, uh, the Mercury 13, quote unquote, is a story that comes up pretty regularly in the media. It's like someone hears about it every five years. They write about it. People get all excited about Jerry and then it dies again. Um, so that story goes around a lot. It's always like the raw, raw, super feminist version. And I had actually was asked to speak about it on a panel at a conference in 2016. And I knew the story. I've read a couple books. And it's it's that story. It's the Jerry story. And I thought it was good. I mean, it's it's very appealing because it's, you know, women take in, women in a male-dominant field in their early 30s trying to be seen as equals because of their skill and like it really kind of hits home to me and I I put up a little blog post about it nothing major and um it was that that version and my agent actually was like I think that's your book and I'm like but it's been done I don't know that there's anything new I can say and what I did notice is that the NASA context is always missing mm-hmm. like, like I said that at, at the same time that this is good getting to a congressional hearing NASA's trying to figure out how to go to the moon and that takes precedence because cold war So I started looking into like, maybe there's a way to balance it with the NASA context. And like, that's, you know, that's my jam. I can, I can write that with my eyes closed, almost literally, and um, started playing around with it. But the the thing that didn't add up for me was the Jackie character. Because like, who is this villain? Like, she comes into the story in the typical retellings of, she's basically Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty. Like she's, she sweeps down from the forest to like thwart the women and then like goes home to hang out with her pet raven. Like, what is she doing? 
doing? Why is she so mad? This doesn't make any sense. Mm. And the things she says that like, you know, you need to play the effectively of playing the game that, you know, if a woman does something wrong, it's bad for women forever. Um, she's not wrong for the era. Like she seems to have a more reasonable approach when we're dealing with 1962. So I started looking into Jackie and that's when I started, oh my God, she, all of the stuff she's done, she's amazing. This is her story. This isn't Jerry's story. It's Jackie's story because Jackie knew everybody. You know, that, that the issue of women in space was, you know, started with Randy Lovelace, who was Jackie's friend, who was funded by Jackie's husband, that it got all the way up to LBJ as vice president, who was Jackie's friend. Like, that all of these people, that she's friends with the Navy brass who are running things. She's friends with the journalists. She's the most notable name in aviation. And everything that happens with women in space, she's the one asked to comment on it because she's so well known. So the whole thing suddenly is like, this is Jackie's story. And Jerry forces her way in because she sees the opening and it becomes their story. So it like it really it was like an evolution of finding exactly what the right angle was. And for like I was so excited to be able to tell the story in a real way that's, you know, it's not the sisterhood of the traveling space pants. It's it's a bunch of women who did a medical test and that was it. And somehow it's been blown into this insane thing. And to be able to not only bring that out, but to bring Jackie out of that, too, was just like, as soon as we, we hit my agent, I have to, like, love her because she was like, this, this role is good. It could be better. And it was like when I hit on that arrangement, she's like, I think this is it. And I'm like, I trust you. And we went out and it was just like, it was great to just like, I spent more time working on the proposal and finding the narrative than I did actually writing the book, which is insane. Of course, researching while writing the proposal. So I had all the stuff done, but. Yeah, it was it took a while to come to this this telling and I think it's exactly where it, it got to exactly where I wanted it to be. So I'm I'm really happy with where it ended, but there's always, you know, always stuff you find out later and you're like, "Oh, damn." Cuz you know, Jerry has a big romance with her boss who was married at the time and like there's some evidence of that, but it's I've been like I'm still curious to find out more. Yeah, it's fun. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm still passionate about digging out details. <laughs> Well, I think the way you set it up with the two of them does a remarkable job of kind of explaining this entire time frame and arc in a really easy way to kind of grab onto. Thank you. It'd be a very, it'd be very easy to write that history in an academic way mm-hmm. that is difficult for some people. I really wanted to not do that. Yeah. Um, you know, I have an academic background and I left academia because I didn't want to write things that were like, this is very informative and also dry. Um, because we're at King's, I feel like I can make the reference maybe of uh, it was Kyle Frazier who told me once that reading Aristotle in the original Greek, which I did, um, was like reading dried egg on a page. And I'm like, yeah, see, I never want anyone to say that about my writing. Mm. So when I started writing this, I really wanted it to feel like a novel. I want it to feel it like you're in a thank you. Yeah, I succeeded. Um, so, you know, all that that said, like there's so much research went into this Um Every piece of dialogue comes from an interview or a letter or some notes. Like, there's nothing that was put into anybody's mouths. And the, the like, the, there's 40 pages of notes in the end. If you want, you can go to the Eisenhower archives yourself and find all of the letters. Maybe I will. <laughs> in beautiful Abilene, Kansas. But yeah, it's I, I really wanted, the story just felt like it's such a fun story. I didn't want it to be stuck behind this wall of academia and... I feel, yeah, in historiography, which is just like the most boring section of a paper to ever write. Um, so I really wanted to just like like have the story be a story and and have everything else in there, but like let it just 
breathe and let it draw people in. And yeah, it was really fun. Well, again, I loved it. Mishira titles Fighting for Space, Two Pilots and Their Historic Battle for Female Spaceflight is available everywhere, especially independent bookstores. <laughs> so at the end of our podcast, we usually talk a little bit about what we've been reading. Has there been anything that you've been reading lately that you'd like to talk about? Yeah. I have the weird thing where when I'm deeply involved in a project, I can't read anything remotely close to it. So as much as I usually read like intense history and stuff, I've been reading a lot of like women's lit lately, which I it's like watching a rom-com, but with a book. And quite frankly, it's how I my brain relaxes. And I absolutely love it. So I've been deeply into like, I call it chick lit. Um, what is the last book I read? I'm blanking on the title, but it's this uh, Jasmine Gilroy is like my new favorite author. She's just she creates these like um, brilliant characters that are diverse and multifaceted, but like and somehow manages to avoid rom-com tropes while creating something that just like sucks you in. I just love a book that you're like, this is fun and easy and I'm just in another world. So I've been doing a lot of that. And um, I'm trying to think of what else I've been reading lately. I mean, I'm still reading a lot of like research for blog posts right. and stuff. I, I read the 1973 women's air force bed rest study that was a great oh, read man, me too. <laughs> yeah um no i also i just i can't i'm like completely blanking on what i've read recently i read a warning recently that was scary yeah by anonymous yeah oh that. living in the u.s i right. felt like it was an interesting one to read and it was like okay now we're going back to something light and fun um my i'm one of those people that like my to read pile is just massive Same. and ever growing i went to the savannah book festival a couple weeks ago just to promote fighting for space and i met a bunch of authors and of course had you know bought their books and we bought them all signed and i i love when you meet an author especially people who write memoirs or stories close to home like oh well, i met you and you're awesome so now i have to know your stories so i have this like stack of books um but yeah it's been a, a, a lot of reading kind of like the fun rom-com books because they're just the best relaxation I'm, it's it's a genre that like it's so much harder to write than i feel like people mm. recognize so yeah jasmine gilroy is my latest perfect uh, so i mentioned i'm a big sucker for antarctic exploration and i just finished the book ice blink which is the Ooh. tragic fate of sir john franklin's last or lost polar expedition by scott cookman and I've read a lot about the Franklin Expedition. Mm -hmm. um, there's just pages and pages written about it. But this was when a really was interesting that? book. Before Shackleton? When was Shackleton? Franklin was 1845. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. There is something about those early Antarctic explorations that are just like, you're taking dogs with you to eat them when they're done pulling your stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, this is madness. So this book tells the story of the Franklin Expedition, but... Whenever you hear about the Franklin Expedition, you hear that, oh, their food went bad and they got botulism and they died because of that, which is true. But this <laughs> book really outlines that the food didn't just go bad. There was a guy in charge of supplying the food for the Franklin Expedition who cut corners in every way that he possibly could right. uh, in a number of ways that affected the food. So he basically gave them what was going to be poison and basically knew to a certain extent what he was doing. Uh, he would replace the good meats that he was supposed to have with really terrible things. There was sawdust in some of the stuff. I think oh they put God. rocks in some of these cans and they wanted like small cans of stuff so they could pasteurize it. Uh, but he would say, okay, that's, that's more work. So we'd put it all in these really large cans and then not cook it long enough. So then it, all that bad stuff is still in the center of it. Oh so it almost turns into this sort of like true crime story. Yeah. Where you learn about this guy and what he did and how he basically doomed the entire thing. So it was a really interesting take on 
on this story that has been in the news a lot lately with them finding the boats and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I want to read that book. See, I need to add that to my to read pile yeah, because that copy. sounds awesome. <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Amy. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, I absolutely love this book and I think everybody should pick it up. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to chat. Bookings is recorded and produced by Paul McKay for the King's Co-op Bookstore in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Bookings is advertisement free. If you like our podcast, why not check out our bookstore at kingsbookstore.ca or sign up for our audiobook program with Libro FM at libro.fm slash kingscoop.